the Gubby Gubby are the traditional custodians of the lands we record this podcast on. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as they hold the memories, tradition and culture of this land. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Hello and welcome to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast, where people who have needed blood thank the donors who have saved, prolonged or improved their lives. My name is Kate Fisher. I'm the founder of Milkshakes for Mali, and I'm on a mission to end persistent critical blood shortages in Australia and around the world. I'm inspired by my seven-year-old daughter, Mali, who started receiving life-saving blood products when she was just three. Mali will be dependent on blood donors for the rest of her life. As for her, blood products are life-saving when she relapses and life-preserving for every infusion in between. This podcast and my advocacy work and the book that I currently have available for pre-order, you can find the info for that um, through the link in our show notes, through the podcast socials or at milkshakesformarley.org, is my creative solution to a social problem. One in three Aussies will need blood during their lifetime, and yet only one in 30 donate it. I want to get as many people donating as I possibly can, like their lives and the lives of their loved ones depend on it. Today is the 17th of November, and it's World Prematurity Day, which aims to raise awareness of preterm birth and the concerns of preterm babies and their families. This is a really important awareness day for us to highlight here through Milkshakes for Mali, as the majority of preterm babies born will require some form of blood products. And that has certainly been the case for the Pastiga family, who have put in a real team effort in bringing our episode to you today. While you will hear from nine-year-old Elder and seven-year-old Charlie in this episode, it's probably not best played in the car if you have little ears listening and in fact probably don't listen to it in the car while you're driving at all um personally I've shared many to you making this episode um and I wouldn't want to hear it for the first time while I was driving but don't let that put you off listening to this episode um just to be aware it does deal with high-risk pregnancy obstetric complication preterm birth pregnancy after loss and neonatal death Um, But it does also manage to radiate love and hope and joy um, and mostly the deep, deep, deep gratitude for Australian blood donors who have time and time again preserved the lives of the Pastiga children and allowed Ian and Lindsay the opportunity to create their family. Um, Here is a little message that Lindsay recorded um, in the days after we recorded this episode. Kate, I wanted to say thank you so much for creating this safe space for all of us to talk about some of these really hard topics and um, for the gentleness and the tenderness with which you kind of question us and help us share our own stories. I was really nervous about coming on today and I felt this immense pressure um, telling our story about Frankie because... When you have a baby in spirit, you don't get many opportunities to talk about them and to bring them back to life. Um, So thank you for the privilege of um, being able to talk about her, just that whole hour that just warmed my heart so much. 
Um, Ian and I know that we're not the first parents to lose a baby and we won't be the last. And so we hope that sharing our story will um, show newly bereaved parents that there is light and hope and joy and happiness somewhere down the path. And for us, it's been four years and we still carry the grief and we are still processing what happened in those days. And to be fair, I think we probably will for the rest of our life, but we've also found joy and happiness. And I wish someone had told me that I would be okay back then. And so for anyone new on this journey, I want you to know that there is hope. And I hope that Lincoln's arrival shows families that happiness like that does exist um, after such heartache. And we send all our love to any families that are new on this journey. And we hope that our stories from the STARS campaign will help little people who are processing this really hard topic and that it also gives adults um, an opportunity to um, start a really hard conversation and our hearts are with you during that time. We are sharing this today to throw the support um, of our family and the Milkshakes for Mali community behind a project that the Pastigas have created as a legacy for their precious baby girl, Francesca, who died after only 36 hours in this world. In partnership with the Canberra Hospital Foundation, they're compiling packs of books and resources for newly bereaved families who have lost a baby. Resources and books, not just for bereaved parents, but also for children and siblings, loved ones and other members of their communities. They are on a mission to lift the veil of silence and isolation for those who have experienced the death of a neonate. There is a link on how you can support this project in our show notes. And I'll also share additional information through our socials. I have known Lindsay and her husband, Ian, for over two decades. And while we have fallen in and out of touch for periods of time, as always happens in this stage of life, um, I have always held the deepest love and respect for them and the way that they navigate their extremely complicated path to parenthood and becoming a family. You see, the Pastigas have, a, have to contend with aloe immunisation during their pregnancies. This means that Lindsay's body mounts an immune response to her growing babies during pregnancy. Once this process commences, the babies are referred to as rhesus babies. Rhesus disease or hemolytic disease of the fetus and newborn is a condition where antibodies in a pregnant woman destroy her baby's blood cells. And this is about as devastating as it sounds. I can't imagine having to experience something like this. Extraordinarily, the treatment is interuterine blood transfusions, meaning that their babies have had many blood transfusions before they are even born. Lindsay has never told this story of her whole family quite like this. And it's such a privilege to have it shared here through the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. This interview is opened by Charlie and Elder talking about their younger siblings, Frankie and Lincoln. And it is my absolute honour to give you this extraordinary episode of the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. What do you guys remember about when he was born? 
Um, I think it was just exciting. Yeah, a special time. Yeah. Do you remember anything, Charlie? Do you remember about him being in hospital and getting to meet him? I think, yeah. Um. Well, I can't remember, but I remember, like, seeing, I remember Frenchie when I, um, I remember seeing her in Nanuku. Yeah. What do you remember about seeing her? Well, I remember she had, I think, brown hair. Yeah, she had the most beautiful hair, didn't she? Yeah. I've seen her and she, your mummy and daddy have sent me photos of Frankie and she is the prettiest baby, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Is there any way, Charlie, that you get to... Wait, does Frankie ever show up in your life in different ways? Does she get to show you that she's still around and still part of your family? Sometimes I see her in my dreams. Do you? What happens in your dreams? Well, I normally just like see her flying around with the angels. Do you? And does she look like she's happy? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that might mean that she's always keeping an eye on you guys and she's just coming to check in? Because do you know what? We have a special baby like Frankie in our family. So when Campbell, our middle guy, when he was a baby, there was two babies in my belly and one of the babies died during the pregnancy, but they both stayed in my belly until they were born. So Campbell has a twin brother. And you know the little blue fairy wrens? You know the little blue birds that you see around Canberra sometimes? He comes to visit us as a little blue fairy wren. So can I show you something? Okay. Whoops, which way am I going? Can you see on my arm here? Can you see this little fairy wren? I love those birds. Yeah. So I got that tattooed on there because we know that he's always part of our family and he's always with us. So we have a little thing in our family that we say that when people die, and people die all the time, it's really, really sad. But just because we can't see them anymore doesn't mean that they're not still part of our family. Yeah. And I think that's probably what Frankie's like with you guys, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I asked mummy and daddy if you could come on the podcast today because your mummy has sent me a few of your drawings and told me a few of the ways that you connect with Frankie. And I wish so much that my kids had a friend like you that could talk about their sibling that died because I think you'd be such a good friend to somebody if that happened to them. Do you want to tell me a little bit about Frankie? Um, well, um, she, she, yeah, she pops up in my, um, dream sometimes. Um, uh, I always draw her with colourful wings, not plain Mm. black or white wings. And I think I see her mostly, um, in rainbows and butterflies. Yeah. Um, she had, I think... Was it blue eyes? Hazel eyes. Yeah. Um, really dark hair. Really. Her hair was incredible. I've seen photos of her. And you know what I've just noticed? What? Look how dark your hair is. Do you think that she might have looked a bit like you? Yeah, because we both have hazel eyes. Yeah. And the beautiful dark hair. Yeah. Yeah. Do you like it when people talk about Frankie? Um, I mean, sometimes I get, um, like emotional, Mm. like it depends if like I'm having a bad day, like thinking about her a lot, but 
Yeah, mostly I'm okay. Yeah. Sometimes I just get a little sad. Yeah, absolutely. And do you know what that sadness is? I say to my kids all the time that that sadness is called grief and grief is just love. It just means that you're a really awesome big sister to her and that you really love her. So even when you're sad, she will feel that as love and she will know that you're still thinking about her all the time. That's so cute. She is so cute, isn't she? And what about Lincoln? Tell me about him. Tell me about him bursting into your world. Um, well, he's annoying, but yes, little brothers usually are. Um, he's, you know, he does give lots of cuddles. Yeah, he definitely wants to be like in all our games and stuff because he's always like do do. That's like the only word he can say. He's like. (laughs) Um, so like he's always just wants so we can just tell that he's wants to play with us and stuff he loves reading books and doing puzzles so we always with him yeah yeah and Mm -hmm. yeah he loves drawing as well but I wouldn't call it drawing I'd call it scribble drawing his own form of art but he thinks he's drawing he thinks he's being a big kid like you doesn't he yeah what about school? What do you love? Tell me about you. Um, I love history mm-hmm. and science. Mm-hmm. Um, I love reading and writing. Um, I love doing like, I love going to school. Just to you. in general, yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you? Yeah. Thought, have you thought about what you might want to do when you grow up, or are you still deciding? I've got lots of options. Like, I want to be mm-hmm. a vet. I also want to be a ranger, but then I also want to be like, um, like, you know, just like help, um, like the poor and stuff, but like, I have no idea what I'm going to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair enough. Do you know what? You remind me so much of your mum. When I first started, when I first met your mum, she didn't know what she wanted to do either. She just knew that she wanted to help people. So I think you probably got that from her. Do you think? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I have really complicated obstetric history. Um, I have a condition called alloimmunization antibodies. And essentially what that is, is my body considers the blood type of my babies, which is always my husband's blood type because of our genetic makeup um, as kind of like a foreign entity in my body. And it tries to shut down a baby whenever I'm pregnant. Um, and I had that condition with the two boys and I also had it with Frankie, but I was treated with Frankie for the entire pregnancy. And what that treatment looks like is weekly scans. It's um, They do a scan, it's called an MCA scan, where they check the blood flow into the baby's um, brain to test for anemia. And so you have a weekly scan. Sometimes it's, you know, every two or three days, depending on how high it goes. And Frankie's levels and her treatment for all of this condition were perfect the entire pregnancy. So I went to 37 weeks, which is really unheard of with this condition, um, considering my other boys were preemie. Um, And I just remember feeling like this intense relief, like this sense of relief. Like I knew she would be our last baby and we knew she was a little girl and we just, we were so relieved that we'd made it that far without intervention. So the intervention for this condition is intrauterine blood transfusions so they take a baby and it's really high risk Um, there's literally 20 specialists and they put blood into the baby's cord or their liver and they do it um, you know kind of 
you know, amazing specialists are incredible. And I had multiple of those IUTs with both Charlie and Lincoln. And so to not need one with Frankie was just unheard of. We were just so ecstatic and just so relieved. And so at 37 weeks, um, I was induced and I went into the hospital. I had a scan that morning. They said, look, she's still perfect. There's no ascites. There's no sign of anemia. She is genetically, she's three, they thought 3.7, 3.8 kilos. She was kicking around like she had long hair, which they could tell from the ultrasound. Um, <laughs> That's a pretty perfect. impressive head of hair if they can see it. Or yeah, not. and they were like, she's really hairy. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we were so excited. Like we went in and I was induced and you know, anyone who's been through an induction knows what that's like. It's really hard. Like it was it's like literally really three, hard. two, one, bang. Yeah. <laughs> and so that happened. Very healed up. <laughs> no. It was, and it being my third baby, I was like, yeah, I can do this. I've got this. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so 18 hours later, I had this really long, hard labor. And she was born at 3.15 a.m. And um, she, I, I get emotional talking about this because it was these small amount of time that I had with her um I after a really hard time pushing her out I finally pushed her out and the nurse the midwife handed her to me and she opened her eyes she had these hazel green eyes that literally sparkled and she looked up at me and her eyes opened and she looked around I could see her looking around the room and I was holding her and she was crying and um the midwife said oh we'll cut the cord now and I must have been so taken back in that moment because I said oh wow like I couldn't I've never had a baby that's looked up at me like that it was like we were you know we had this soul connection and looking back on it we just connected on this level that I've never ever felt before and I handed her back to the midwives and at that point they were trying to get Ian to come over and cut the cord and <laughs> The midwife said, oh, he's collapsed from the blood. And I looked over and he had collapsed. And um, and the midwife said, well, just cut. I said, just cut the cord, just check her. And because she was a rhesus baby, I knew that they would need to rush her off and check her. Like she needed to get under the lights of Billy Rubin. Mm. Even though she was perfect, I knew that um, neonate care afterwards is really important. And I looked over at Ian, he said something's wrong. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And they said, no, he's he's stressed out from the blood. And, and I said, no, he's not. Like, this is the third baby. He's not worried about the blood. And the midwife said, oh, look, we'll take the baby up to the um, NICU now. We'll wheel her up. And so they put on the table and off they went and he followed them behind. And I knew something was off with him because he just wasn't himself. And so they went and I had, I needed really quite intense stitches and I needed food. And so um, I had something to eat and I had stitches. And then about two hours later, the midwife came in and I hadn't had a shower or anything. And she said, hey, and she got down on my level and she said, look, we need to go see Francesca now. And um, I said, can I have a shower? <laughs> she said, no, you need to go now. And so they put me in a chair and they took me up to the Canberra Hospital NICU, which is on the, the top floor, as you know, Kate. Mm. Um, and we came out of the lift and I could see Ian, and anyone who's been in the NICU knows that right down the end is a couch and it's kind of these beautiful big glass windows. And I could see him sitting there next to a midwife and um, I just I just knew, like when I saw his face, I just knew something was wrong and they wheeled me down and we passed her room on the left and I looked over and there would have been maybe 20 specialists all working on this tiny little baby. And, I mean, she wasn't tiny compared to other babies. She was huge in the NICU. She was a chubby baby. She had all these cords on her 
And the midwife said, do you want, do you want to see Ian? I said, yeah, take me to Ian. And she left us and he just looked over at me and he said, Lynn, she's not very well. Um, we didn't know anything. We didn't know why. He just said they're running heaps of tests. Her oxygen levels haven't um, come up. She was, she had acidosis. She had ascites in most of her organs. Her heart was um, bleeding. Um, she'd had a brain bleed. So there was all these things that had happened in those few hours. And um, I said, take me in to see her. And so we went in there um, and she was in a coma by that point. So I hadn't even held her. Um, and she was kind of sitting, laying in the bed. Her eyes were shut. She, they were trying to get blood. They couldn't get blood out of her. I looked to my left and the director of the NICU, and this was kind of 5.30, she'd been called in and I thought, oh, this is not good because I we had known her from Charlie's pregnancy and I knew she wasn't working the night Frankie was born because there was no concern with Frankie. We didn't think that she would be needed. And so she'd been called in and just as I got in there, they started CPR on her and I heard one of the nurses say, we need some help, we need some help. And so the button was pressed and there was alarms going off and they brought her back and, and she started kind of slowly breathing again, but she was a very, very unwell baby. And I don't, I don't remember a lot of the detail after that. I remember one of the specialists came and spoke to Ian and then he spoke to me, but I never, I, I couldn't, they didn't talk to me because I was in such a state. I'd had a 36, wow. well, an 18 hour labor. I'd been in the hospital for two or three days waiting for that labor to come on. So I hadn't slept for days. I was so out of it and I was physically in a lot of pain because the labor was so difficult. Um, And so they were trying to kind of get the message across to Ian and Ian was then trying to relay it to me, but it took me, you know, she she lived for another 36 hours, but I would say that it wasn't until 35 hours and, you know, 30 minutes that I accepted that maybe she wasn't going to pull through. She she never kind of regained consciousness. Her oxygen levels still remained low. We tried multiple blood products, so they tried IVIG. Um, after about 24 hours, they said, we'll give her an exchange transfusion which was is a standard treatment for rhesus babies in case it was rhesus because they thought maybe this is an antibody reaction. Yeah. Can I just clarify something just for our listeners as well? I've been trying so hard not to interrupt you. But <laughs> when you were saying before that she was born and she was a rhesus baby, you weren't suggesting that she needed to be resuscitated as in no, a rhesus no. baby. No, no. This is the medical condition racist blood yeah so we knew she would be affected on some level by my antibodies but because she had been monitored so closely and had needed no intervention throughout my pregnancy there was no indication that she was affected by the antibodies mm -hmm. um and so yeah we stayed we brought the kids up straight away and we called my parents and you know the neonatologists and pediatricians are so beautifully skilled in how to share these messages and how to gently and tenderly give us that advice and so you know and now that I look back on those conversations I can completely see what was going on but they mm. were saying mum and dad should come down mum and dad you know I've been Lee's more so they had to get a flight and 
you know, you should fly your parents down and would you, do you think you'll baptize her? And I remember saying to the neonatologist, of course, I'm going to baptize her. We do it with our first birthday every year. We have a big family of the same thing. Not doing it. I'm not doing it here. Like I'll I'll have a big family event. Yeah. I've just had a baby. Do you think I could think about this another time? Like (laughs) (laughs) it seems absurd in the moment, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it does. But I mean, in hindsight, I could see what was happening. Um, And so Elder and Charlie came up and they got to meet her, which was really special. And we got some photos of five of us. Um, And then at about 36 hours, um, the specialist said, look, she, we don't, there's no, there was no brain activity at all. Um, And she wasn't, you know, improving in any way, shape or form. And Ian and I had to have this conversation where it was about her quality of life as well. Like we didn't want to hang on for three or four days in the hope that maybe she would pick up it that's not the life we wanted for her and we knew that that's not the life she would have wanted um and so we did with their guidance move her into a palliative care type arrangement um and at 36 hours I got my first cuddle with her and we got to hold her and um you know she she couldn't look at me or anything like that and I um after I held her as soon as she was born but then there was nothing until 36 hours and I just put her on my body and Ian was holding me and we um we took the cords out of her mouth and I you know even in that moment I thought she's gonna stop breathing like I, I just always had this I think as a mother you're the last person to give up hope and so I was just like you know what I am I am holding on to the fact that she's going to pull through this. And it wasn't until that very last moment where she kind of closed her eyes and I, I felt her leave. And Ian, Ian leaned over my shoulder and he said to her, he said, it's okay, you can go. Like, we'll promise we'll always, we'll, we'll help celebrate your birthdays and it's okay, honey, you can leave. And he said that to her. And in that moment she left and we felt her leave. Her body changed. Um, she kind of went stiff and... Um, I felt very supported by my guardian angels and my grandparents in spirit. Like I felt so much energy in the room that day. And so I knew she wasn't going on her own. Like I knew that they were with her and that um, she was kind of taken by something bigger than us. And so she left and then we were able to do some of the most beautiful rituals that the Canberra Hospital prepared for us. We bathed her and we dressed her and Elder picked her outfits and um you know we had picked out her hospital outfit and so Elder brought those up and we put her in those and um you know the neonatologist nurses are so beautiful they guided us through all of this stuff we took her handprints and yeah it was it was beautiful something that you and your husband Ian did a few weeks ago when you went back to the university college that we all lived on together um for four years Ian was there for three of them is that right uh, Ian, yeah he was five he was one extra year yeah yeah right I thought there was a crossover at some stage anyway yeah. <laughs> um you sent me a photo walking through the courtyard of Earl Page College and there's you and your three living children. And it really struck me that you would be there catching up with people that you hadn't seen necessarily for multiple decades that wouldn't know your whole family story. 
when people said to you, you know, what are you doing now? How do you describe what your family looks like and how many children you have? That's a question um, that I thought a lot about over the last few years. And I think any bereaved parent, it's something that it, straight away, it's one of the first things that they think about because people do naturally in conversations go to how many children do you have? And it happens to me on a daily basis. And in in the beginning, I used to say that I had three, but now I'm really open about saying I have four. And mm. the way I describe our family is that I have three here and I have one who's forever a neonate and she's a baby and we lost her as a baby. And um, I'm really honest about that. I say it up front to people when I meet them. And I know that sometimes that makes people feel a little uncomfortable, but that's our story. And she's a, a part of our family. We're six people and um, nothing will ever change that. So I, for my own healing, need to say four children every time. Mm-hmm. And so I was very honest when we were with, you know, our friends that we hadn't seen for 20 years and most of them I was lucky had known our story and um, I really appreciated the ones that kind of came out up front and said, hey, how are you going? Like I know what you've been through in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And the ones that didn't, um, you know, as soon as I told them there was so much empathy and compassion and um you know, love. And I, I just enjoyed so much being around people who are so supportive. And it's hard for people to understand that haven't lived in a university college situation like we did. And this was college 20 years ago as well. It's not going to look like that now, but there's nowhere to hide. Like you are sharing bathrooms that are mixed gender bathrooms, (laughs) you know, having shower parties together and drinking before you go out. There's no, like, there's no privacy apart from your tiny little room, which people just come and go from all the time. Anyway, you're eating together, you're showering together, like you're doing everything together all the time. So to go back to that place where you didn't have to pretend, it must've been a really interesting yeah, parallel of the life that you used to have and the one that you have now. Yeah, no, that's so true. Um, And like Ian and I were talking in the car trip home and I think it brought up so many emotions for both of us just being in that environment because whenever we go back to somewhere from before, Frankie, um, there's just a different feeling in the energy and, and in our life because to me that period was just pure happiness to me. It was so much joy and there was no... It was kind of at that time of our life where we were so young and we didn't realise that there was kind of hardness in the world, you know. The the greatest dilemma we had was what were we going to wear to the bistro on a Wednesday night or yes. like, find that bottle of passion pop. Yes. <laughs> and it's, like, like it's a beautiful time when you're that age and, you know, you're falling mm. in love and all of those things. Mm. Um, so being back in that environment and the smells and, you know, the just looking at the walls and everything about being on that campus last weekend just reminded us of a time when we were really, really happy. Yeah. Um, and and that is sometimes yeah just that contradiction between life now where we carry a bit of a hardness um, where we carry kind of scars of life as you get older it was really nice to be back there for two days and not think about that <laughs> yeah and that's something that Jeff and I have really wrestled with as well in terms of the way that we weave Benjamin through our family story so new listeners to the pod um might not know that we have a surviving twin. Campbell is our surviving twin. Um, Benjamin died during our pregnancy. Um, and we very much recognize him as part of our family and part of our family story. We've let Campbell lead that a lot, particularly as he's got older. We feel like he's got that really special connection. And early on, we really wrestled with ensuring that people knew and that the kids knew that Benjamin's part of our family story, not having them walk our grief path 
but at the same time honoring and holding space for him as part of our family. And we didn't want to wipe away that innocence from them that you were just talking about that I think until you experience something like this, you see the world as a very different place because you just can't fathom that babies can die and you know what's worse like there's nothing worse than having experiencing something like that Mm -hmm. um and I got a chance to chat to your beautiful children just before I started talking to you and we'll include some of that audio in this podcast episode and it's just so incredible to see the way that a generation is changing in the way that we talk about death and we talk about love and we talk about grief um, and moving away from some of that taboo. Mm. How do you guys approach that um, and how? what impact do you think that's had on your kids? Yeah, look, in the beginning um, we were the same. We didn't know how to weave Frankie into our life but also to be the parents, that new version of a parent that we were after that event so I feel like the day Frankie died the kids met a new version of their parents like we were a different um yeah we were different mothers and fathers and we had to try and weave in that experience but also kind of console and support and um, be tender with them on their own grief journeys whilst also managing grief ourselves um kind of parenting while you're going through grief is probably one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do it takes such a level of self-control um, because parenting in itself is really hard anyway. Yeah, then, like really hard. <laughs> and then you throw that added, you know, that that absolute devastation on top of that, but you still mm. have to get up and you still have to have those conversations and be patient and manage b- bad behaviour, which all of those things, when kids are grieving, like they don't understand these big emotions or what they're going through. Um, we tried to be really open with our kids from the beginning and we've, Set, you know, one of our family kind of philosophies is that we always talk about the really hard stuff and we say to the kids, you can do really hard things, um, survive the most possible, worst possible thing that could happen to us as parents and for them losing a sibling, that's probably the worst thing that could happen to them, you know, for, at this point in their life. Um, and so we were really open with them from the beginning. Mm. It was really difficult because we lost Frankie and then we went into like the Canberra bushfires and so we were kind of housebound. We couldn't go outside and then COVID hit and it was two years of kind of, I mean, the kids didn't see their grandparents for two years and eight months and so we had to really bond together as a family, the five of us, or the four of us and Frankie in spirit to yeah get through that um but we're really lucky that we had a lot of friends and family and people who did talk about Frankie and they talked to the kids about it and that has been so important on her healing journey Mm. Um, you know the schools were really amazing um but I wrote about the pain of silence in that article that I wrote for her Canberra because there were still parts of society and friends in our community that found it really hard to talk Mm. about to see us Mm. um we would be walking down the shops and we'd see people who knew us and they could not get away from us quick enough. Like they would literally turn and walk down the opposite end of the shopping aisle. And mm-hmm. I mean, Ian and I both noticed it multiple times and it wasn't a huge amount of people, but there was definitely some people and that was really painful for us. Um, and we know that it's awkward and it's uncomfortable to talk about what happened to, to Frankie and losing a child but since that happened to me, I've, I've been so overwhelmed by the, the amount of people that have opened up to me about their own kind of suffering and loss and experiences that they've had. Um, and people want to talk about these things. I think 
it's it's so healing to talk about it and I think for people who've lost a child like saying that baby's name and talking about the color of her hair and what we learned from that experience is really healing we need that when you're grieving you need to talk about it so for me I'm so grateful that this experience happened to us now and not 30 years ago I don't know how I emotionally would have got like been able to cope or move through that because of that silent um culture back then I think that would have been really really hard and just for our listeners benefit I'll pop a link to that article in our show notes as well um the her Canberra article it is such an incredibly vulnerable piece of writing and it's something that I wish someone could have handed me when we were going through that experience because no one prepares you, and I know that our experiences were very different, but nobody prepares you. No one prepares you. Like you don't see reflections of it in, you know, popular culture or in media or if it is portrayed, it's portrayed as devastation that you then find a way to move on from, not as something that stays permanent in your life. You know, people worry about saying Benjamin's name to us or asking about it or talking about it I think they worry that you're going to be triggered and remember but you just like it's like in the same way that you don't stop thinking about your living children like they're just always on your mind you know who's at school where they are what we've got going on on the weekend like it's just part of our family story and our narrative and who we are so yeah absolutely um We will move on in a minute to talking about the way that blood donors have helped you create your family. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just wanted to share that when I found out about Frankie's passing, um, it was while I was surrounded by my pregnancy after loss support group mums who have been the only reason that I think there's plenty of days that I just wouldn't have been able to keep going and it's so important to have those people around you. But it was actually at um, Marley's Charity Ball when we were having the ball. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Fundraise for Patty and her She's Your Response Service Dog and all the things that we were doing at that time. Um, And mutual friends of ours asked if I'd heard. And I had had a few glasses of champagne and was pretty happy because I don't think I'd had anything to drink for years because Marley was so sick and I was like oh my god like really really excited and then just the looks of horror on their faces because Mm. I I didn't know and then you could see they were like oh god do we say anything do we not say anything and you know I had just you know maybe an hour before that stood in front of hundreds of people at that ball and told the stories of our family story and Benjamin and it was one of my pregnancy after loss support group mums who had organized that ball Mm -hmm. and it's amazing how people that understand that time of your life then just keep showing up and supporting you and one of the things that I said at that time was that I hope that all of our babies are playing together wherever they are looking down on us and looking down on us proudly knowing that we are still talking about them and we're opening up that conversation for anyone that comes after us that has experienced that. And what was interesting was the feedback that I got in talking about that actually made people feel more uncomfortable than the photos that we shared of Mali in pediatric intensive care, having, you know, status epileptic seizures, intubation, ventilation, her, you know, being in a wheelchair, using a speech device, the fact that she had a life-threatening condition 
and it was mm-hmm. sort of ages three, four, and five that we had shared that part of the journey. People were far more triggered about me talking about those babies that we had all lost and they were seeing photos of her being so sick. And it's just such an interesting reflection of society and the way that that silence still prevails. So I'm so grateful to you for what you're doing um, and what you also hope to do in the future, which we'll get to as well. Um, Because there's people, you know, I look at our children and I'm so grateful that they have got words and a narrative to put around this in a way to talk to people about it in a way that I certainly didn't when we experienced something like this. Yeah. And look, it's something that you don't necessarily want to think about. And I can understand like for people who either haven't had kids or have kids, you definitely don't want to go there until you have your own children. You love something so intensely that you all of a sudden contemplate, you know, the reality that something could happen. Like mm. until you're in that moment where you love something so much, it's so difficult to even understand that that's a possibility. Mm. And out of self-protection, you don't want to go there. I get that. Yeah. Um, yeah. The reality um, is that we don't get a choice. And most people, people who have been through trauma like this don't have mm. a choice. It's every day. It's every second of the day. It's mm. in your mind and you're living and breathing that broken heart. And so mm. if it's uncomfortable for you to go there for a minute or two minutes just to ask how they're going or to mention mm. or to ask Elder about her her big her little sister, um, yeah. it, it's not that difficult to go to that place just mm. for a few so what language at different stages in your journey did you find helpful like in that immediate aftermath what did you find helpful that people said or did for you because I'm sure there's people that are going to be listening to this episode that may experience in the future someone that they know and or love have the death of a baby um and they're wondering what am I supposed to do, say? Like, what did you guys actually find helpful in that time? And I know that's a tricky question because you probably don't remember a lot of that time. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like um, the entire first three months was a complete blur. Like my soul left my body and I don't remember much of that time, to be honest. Um, but what I would say is that that you can't say anything wrong. There's mm. nothing you can say. And people said some really stupid things to me in those first few months, but it it didn't upset me in the same way that people who ignored the situation upset me mm. because I knew that their intention was great. Like they yeah. didn't know what to say and they just wanted to be there for me and they wanted me to know that they, you know, their heart was with us in that time and that meant everything to us. Yeah. Um, there is, there's no right or wrong in what you say, turning up, just showing up, just being there, just sitting there. Mm. People would practical help was, you know, really important for us with other little children um, just because when you go through that kind of trauma, it's so difficult just to show up for life. So cooking meals, doing all of that kind of stuff made a huge difference to us. But just sitting with us, we had friends that would just come and sit with me on the couch and they would, you know, I'll never be able to repay the patience. They just sat for hours on end, made me cups of tea. And they just let me talk and Mm. I wanted to talk about what happened. I wanted, I was so angry. I wanted to just vent and share my frustration and they sat there and just listened the entire time. And Mm. there was no um, kind of expectations around replying to text messages or replying to phone calls. It was like, I, I was in control. And if I wanted to call people, that was fine. And if I didn't, they, people weren't expecting me to do anything Mm. and I think that was really important I think early on a friend said that to me she said it's completely up to you what you want to do for the next few months Mm. you know please don't feel any expectation um and that I I needed to be given that permission and I think that was really important Mm. 
But I, I think the friends that showed up, you know, in the months afterwards, because the first two or three weeks, there's a lot of people there for you. There's a lot of people calling and everyone's, you know, you get 7,000 bunches of flowers delivered, which are amazing. And you have all the meals and the craft packs on your doorstep. But after that time, life goes back to normal for everyone else. But you're stuck in this kind of vortex going round and round, trying to get out, trying to work out a way to escape. And the people who showed up during that time for me, I will never be able to repay them because they were the ones that kind of pulled me out of that dark hole that we were in. And Mm. I think if I hadn't had those people there just constantly checking on me and pulling me out and bringing me back to the land of the living every Saturday morning for coffee, was that I think that's something that I'll never be able to repay them for. And I think that's the most important thing, like just to keep showing up for people when they're in that state. And you touched on something important then too about the siblings in a situation like this. Um, We've found it, whether it's, you know, Marley's been really sick or different things that we've had happen is, you know, whether it's offering, you might not know what to say to the parents, offer to take the younger kids to a movie or to the park or, you know, even with all the flowers and stuff that were showing up, we had we had similar things at different stages. And in the end, we were just like, can you just, you know, instead of spending that money on flowers, buy some Lego for the kids or do you know what I mean? Like it was our other children as well. We were all experiencing it, but it was difficult for them, yeah, yeah. to understand. Um, and then in the end, we said, don't send flowers, send us a card and go and do a blood donation. And that's how we've ended up here. Our milkshakes for Mali Community when you were talking about the timing and the bushfires and all of that kind of stuff was at its peak of donating in the ACT during that time. Mm -hmm. And I really hope that it was one of our milkshakes for Marley donors that made the blood product that Frankie Mm -hmm. needed. And that might've given her just that little bit extra comfort or quality of life. Or, you know, we say quite often that particularly with children when they receive blood products that it allows families to know that you tried everything and she had every possible option and every possible treatment and you don't walk away from it going, well, if only this was available, then maybe she could have pulled through. So I really hope that it was one of the people that was inspired by donating for our family that gave your little Mm. girl that little bit of extra comfort and I know that you telling that story so candidly and so honestly is going to help so many people. And I wish when we have been through lots of different experiences that I was able to listen to your story in the way that you've just told it, because it would make such a big difference. I just wanted to say one thing for Frankie's pregnancy was the first time that Medicare had approved a blood product, the IVIG for her. And I should have mentioned that earlier, but Um, essentially I had IVIG weekly and that is a game-changing product for um, alloimmunization pregnancies and so I had it with Frankie and with Lincoln and so absolutely like I had blood plasma every week that got me to 37 weeks and when we went back three months it took three months for her post-mortem to come back to try and find some answers as to what happened and when we had that appointment with the specialists whilst there was no conclusive this is what happened and we think this is what why she died, um, there was no indication that she was affected by those antibodies in the beginning. And so um, it was more pointing towards a random kind of brain aneurysm event during my labour. And so I got her to full term because of blood products and because of blood donors in this country. And 
because that product was available for Frankie, I was able to use it. It wasn't for Charlie. And because of that, he had to have blood transfusions that were really risky and that we could have lost him very early in my pregnancy. But for Frankie, I never had to go through any of that trauma because we got her to full term and those antibodies didn't affect her. And so the IVIG products um, that I had for both her and Lincoln completely changed my pregnancy experience and her, like her outlook. And as you say, I have no regrets about what we did to try and prepare, um, prepare her body and protect it from that condition. That's magical. And to have that, I will forever be thinking about the fact that she looked up at you so alert like that. So for her first birthday, you go to Lake Krakenback, you decide to go and lock yourselves away from the world for a little while. Speaking of signs from the universe, can you tell me what happened while you were there? Yeah, I get emotional talking about this because it's just, I feel like it was her. So we, when we arrived, there was, is this the bird's nest story? Yeah. When we arrived, there was a bird's nest at the front door of our cabin and there was a mama bird and she had these three little babies and they were so cute and she was very aggressive. So we were trying to bring the bags in and out of the door and (laughs) we were really scared of this bird. And I can't even tell you what type of bird it was, but um, it was beautiful. And there was a, we kind of watched these little babies over the seven days just grow and at the end of our trip, um, the very last night, there was this crazy storm and the trees were going wild and we were all awake because we woke up from the thunder and lightning and the kids said, oh, my God, what about the birds? And so we ran down to the front door and the nest had been thrown from the beam and we looked out and two little bubbies were kind of jumping around and one of them had died, the baby had died. And so there was two out of the three And the mum was, you know, hysterical, like trying to get these babies back in the nest. And so we went out and moved the nest and we moved the little birdies back in. Um, And we we buried the third little baby and the kids said little prayers and we made a little cross for her. And, you know, the symbolism was just so incredible for us that that had happened on her first birthday and that Mm. that family experienced exactly what we had experienced and the kids were you know, just constantly saying that's like us, mom, that's, that's Frankie. And that's, we were able to save the older birds and yeah, it was beautiful. Um, So you decide after all of this, pregnancy Mm -hmm. after loss is terrifying. Yeah. Having a more high risk pregnancies aside from everything that you've already been through is terrifying and Mm -hmm. it's impossible to make that decision about whether you go again and what you do, what tipped you over the edge to thinking that there would be the possibility of another little person in your world? Frankie came to me in a dream. I think I've told you this. She came to me in a dream and she had a little boy and he was blonde. And I didn't, I had no idea how I knew this was Frankie. I just knew it was her. And she had this little boy and he looked up at me and she said, he's ready when you are. And he looked at her and said, she recognises me. And I woke up and I was like, what the hell? And I, I tried so hard to go back to the dream and I couldn't. And I, I didn't tell Ian for ages. And then after the 12 month um, anniversary, so her first birthday, um, I just, I said to Ian, I feel like we're not complete. I feel like I had this kind of intuition that we had to try again. And I had to risk that. I had to risk it because I had to put some trust back in the universe or I don't even know what it was, but I just didn't feel like our story was over. 
so we gave it three months we said that's it we'll try for three months if it's meant to be it's meant to be and we reached out to some incredible specialists who we were connected through some of these amazing mothers groups that you talk about Mm. um there was an iso um mothers group that's an international group and we sent our story to some specialists one in australia and one international and we said what do you think our chances are of having a healthy baby Um, And they both came back to us and said, we think you can do it. We think with the right care, another baby is possible. Um, And they gave us hope. And I think without that hope, we probably would not have tried again. Yeah. Um, And so we tried and it was meant to be because it happened straight away. And, you know, it's hard falling pregnant. And I was older Mm. and didn't think that that would happen. And Mm. we'd been through a lot physically. My body was. Yeah. like I'd been through a lot in the last few years. And so I wouldn't have been surprised if my body wasn't ready to nourish another baby. Yeah. Especially after the IVIG with Frankie. Um, it's really hard on pregnant um, women. Mm. And I, it took a lot of kind of, con- not convincing, but I had to really sit with the pain and the grief of that process because I knew what I was facing. I knew I had to do it again. Mm. And it was literally 40 weeks of very, very, very sick. And um, But because of everything I'd been through, I just knew that if I didn't do this, I would feel like there was always a stone left unturned. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So it happened and we were so lucky that we had specialists who were willing to provide extra advice on our case um, and I've always advocated for my babies with this condition because I knew that it's very rare. So it's only 4% of pregnancies have this. And so not many obstetricians know much about it. Um, We're very lucky in Canberra. We had a fetal medicine unit. So we did have care here. Mm -hmm. Um, But this time I wanted a million doctors on my case. Yeah, of course you did. Everyone involved. Um, Having said that, you did have to travel to Sydney for some of your treatment as well, didn't you? Yeah, we did. Yeah. So once, once I got to a point, so we, so Linky's pregnancy went really well until 25 weeks. And that's, I guess, the torture of this condition. The first 16 weeks, there's no issue. So you can kind of fly through that knowing that the baby doesn't, the antibodies don't cross the placenta till 16 weeks. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of nice because you can, it's torturous, but it's nice because you can have that sense of relief for those first, which is unlike most high risk pregnancies. That's yeah, absolutely. the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it was kind of hard to describe to people, yeah, it's really risky, but I'm fine now. I'm fine until such and such. <laughs> um, and so we, we were getting weekly draws, blood draws, and we started MCA scans at 16 weeks um, and everything was going really well. And then at 25 weeks, I went in for my weekly scan and my blood draw and my quants, as they call it, had just gone through the roof. So my antibodies had gone crazy and they'd obviously, it had realized that there was this foreign body in my body and I wanted to shut it down and they shut down the red blood cells of the baby. So um, the levels were pretty high. The Canberra specialist team said, let's rescan tomorrow or next week. And so I went home and I just said to Ian, I'm not, I'm not happy with that. I don't want to wait. Um, you know, there was a chance that it would have gone back to normal. It kind of fluctuates a lot with this condition, um, but I wasn't happy. And so I asked them to send my file to the specialist in Sydney um, and I got a call at 8.30 that night. Um, incredible professor who has changed our life and he said, I've just read your huge history and I've looked at the scan and I want to see you at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. And so we got in the car and we drove up and we went in and he said, look, with your history, with these results, um, 
I can see the baby's heart looks inflamed and I don't want to take any risks. So I want to go in straight away. And so a few hours later, we had blood ordered, which is incredible because blood for an IET is has to be the purest, most cleanest. It has to go through a heap mm-hmm. of um, oxygenation processes. Mm-hmm. They're very funny about what type of blood. So I think he said he had one round of blood. He said, I'm not happy with that blood. I want different blood. And so... So that's an interuterine transfusion, is that right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And the scan you were talking about for the M something. Yeah. Well, yeah. So middle cerebral artery scan. So that checks the baby's blood flow into, um, sorry, from my placenta into the brain. So that checks the level of anemia. So right. it looked like the baby, and we knew it was a little boy then, we looked like he was starting to become anemic. He'd slowed down a lot as well. He wasn't kicking as much, which is another sign. Uh-huh. Um. And so we went into the IUT that day and like he just nothing aligned. He was a posterior baby, so they couldn't get to the placenta. Um, and so the, the procedure only takes 20 minutes and it took an hour and 40 minutes. And so as, as the mother, I can't have any kind of pain, pain relief or they gave me a muscle relaxant because I have to stay still while they yeah. get this needle that's literally 30 centimetres long into the cord. Um and so the room was full of, you know, multiple specialists, the heap of grad students, trainee, FMU, like, because it's mm. a very rare condition. And so it's a great opportunity mm. to learn. Um, and they eventually got blood and they dumped it into his liver. And his hemoglobin at that point was 7.5, which is oh. really low. Um, and he said to me later that that little baby probably wouldn't have made it if we hadn't have given him blood that day. So, yeah, and so I'd you know, for Ian and I, it was just another sign from the universe that we trusted our instinct because I yes. just had a feeling I wanted something done about it. And so I, I I wasn't normally someone to jump up and down, but I just said, no, I want my file sent to Sydney now. And, and it's so hard to trust your own intuition when you've been through that level of trauma as well. I was even thinking before when you were saying that his kicking had slowed down a little bit. How do oh. you trust your own I know. intuition on that when you undoubtedly would have had such an anxious pregnancy like there's no way that you couldn't carry and you know we've had this at times too where at what point does that anxiety become useful (laughs) when is it like when do you know to trust it it's a really difficult thing to know when to trust that intuition so it's phenomenal that you pushed forward with that yeah I feel like you know like I knew that this time was different like I felt I had felt throughout the pregnancy times and I was worried about him and then I could just kind of go to bed or I could let it go but this time I couldn't I just mm. I couldn't let it go I felt sick and I felt that feeling in my gut mm. that I need to do something so yeah so we had the blood transfusion and we got his hemoglobin up and, and that started on our journey from 25 weeks through to his birth at 34 weeks and involved multiple transfusions every 10 days back to Sydney through COVID lockdowns <laughs> um there were blood challenges mm-hmm. um, because of COVID. There was a point where we were locked out of that part of Sydney. We couldn't get into the hospital. And so there was the point that we'd have to maybe fly someone into Canberra to do the transfusion. And then there was a blood issue. In, so it was a really tricky time. We were going through a very similar thing, except, yeah, we'll see Marley was having hers every 10 days at that point as well. Yeah. And we actually had to be transferred to Sydney a few times to have it done because she couldn't have her treatment in Canberra. Like people just don't realise, I think, and that's really inspired part of the work that I do as well, is people don't realise that there's persistent critical blood shortages in Australia in different blood types all the time and that medical specialists have to make the decision about whether to give that treatment 
to your baby or to my child and who yeah. has got the better chance, you know, and yeah. as I can't imagine having to triage and make those decisions, which medical professionals have to do every day, but you don't realize until you're on that side of it, how difficult it is. And it only takes, I know the bushfires are a big thing. COVID was a big thing, but it just takes one hiccup to change the way that things normally flow and people not to be able to get to regular appointments to donate or even yeah. people having appointments booked that they don't turn up for. Yeah. That's one of the other ones too, that, you know, it's amazing when you go and sit in the chair and you potentially save three lives by giving a blood donation. But if you have an appointment booked that you don't show up for, that stops someone else sitting in that chair being able to do that. So mm -hmm. something to be mindful of. Yeah. So, of course, you couldn't have just done this without too many hiccups. You decide to do it in the middle of a massive global pandemic. <laughs> so how much did that impact Ian being able to be present with you and support you during the later stages of your pregnancy and then during your birthing and NICU journey? Yeah, um, a lot. It was a, a completely different experience to our other three children for that reason. Um, Ian couldn't come into the hospitals with me. So when I was going in, I spent every Tuesday um, at IVIG and Ian couldn't come in with me. And he traditionally he hadn't come with me to those appointments anyway, but he couldn't come onto the hospital grounds. Oh. Um, he couldn't come for my scans. Um, there were some provisions made, obviously, because of our experience. And also, um, you know, I think, the hospital were very good at managing mental health during that mm, time. Yeah. And it was just so stressful for everyone involved. Mm. Um, Ian came in for the birth of Linky. So he was born at 34 weeks and, um, but it was really tricky. We were in lockdown. We had no family here. And so we dropped our kids that day to a, a friend of ours who looked after them for the day. I went in, I birthed Lincoln and Ian had to go and pick up our kids. And so I stayed on my own that night he saw Lincoln twice in seven weeks. You know, I've thought about this a lot, but I think society, pregnancy after loss, I think we can probably do that much better. Like oh. I, didn't, I didn't see Lincoln. Like he he was born at 3.30 p.m. and no one took me to see him until 5.30 the next morning. And so I just sat in my room on my own. My husband was gone. I had nurses come and check on me, but I needed to see that baby to know he was okay. And I think, we need to, you know, somehow work out a way to do that better mm -hmm. um, because that 12 hours or 14 hours just sitting there waiting was excruciating. Yeah, I bet it was. So tell me about the project that you're going on to do with the Canberra Hospital now um, and, yeah, what you're hoping to achieve about opening up that conversation a little bit more. Yeah, so for Frankie's fourth birthday, Ian and I felt like we were finally in a place where we wanted to do something to give back to the NICU, to give back to the hospital. Um, you know, we've had three babies through that NICU and we know what that journey is like for families. Um, we also just wanted to do something to honour her life as well. Um, and when we left the hospital, one of the hardest things was dealing with the kids. And I know you spoke to your elder before and she's in a really good place now, but that has been four years of kind of, yeah, of course um, it is. working away at that. Mm. Um, Ian and I are both really traumatised by the memory of when the kids found out. Oh. They came up to the hospital and elder and um, Charlie both ran. They were three and five. And so she ran down the corridor and she had a little backpack on and, 
she had a little pigtails and you know anyone who's had siblings know or children knows the siblings is just the most exciting time like this new baby's coming it's my little sister and you know my mum and dad feel the same way and I know my mother-in-law as well because we just saw her come down and she had just this look on her face and she's like where's my sister and we had to take her in and tell her and you know where both Ian and I have only just been able to talk about how traumatic that was watching her little heart break in that moment and so one of the things we wanted to do this year was to help provide some kind of resources and support to parents going through this to help the siblings so Mm -hmm. we didn't feel like we had a lot of support in terms of how to have those discussions with the kids what to do and as I mentioned before when you're going through grief then having to kind of parent someone else through grief is really really hard Mm -hmm. So we, um, I remember it's, I Googled at like 3 a.m. that first night, is this going to ruin their life? Because I honestly thought that I'd, I'd destroy their life by, by this happening and I didn't know how to help them. And so we've started, um, we spoke to the Canberra Hospital NICU about um, a campaign to provide kind of grief packs of um, stories for the kids that talk about death, yeah, and that open the conversation with parents or with a family friend or an auntie or a carer who's there with them in the days afterwards where they can say, look, there is this invisible string and your little sister's not gone forever. And so providing those resources to the parents after stillborn or a baby dies in a NICU will will take one thing off their plate in those first few weeks. That's beautiful. It's going to, yeah, make such a difference and I was I said earlier in this interview that there's like nothing prepares you there's no script you don't know how to do this and if someone at different stages in our journey had have handed us something and said here's a bit of an idea of you know how this might look or some things that you could say or it at least starts that conversation and then you can parent in the way that you want to but if you don't yeah. even know where to start, it yeah, yeah, you're just in such a state of shock in different stages with these things. So I yeah. think that's incredible. Is it something that our listeners can support in some way? Yeah, so um, it's it's a campaign that's going to be run through the Canberra Hospital NICU Foundation mm-hmm. um, and on their website. And we have a local bookshop um, who has come on board and we've sourced, I think, 45 of these amazing grief books that we know will be really well used in the hospital. Mm-hmm. We've also included some books for parents. So I'm sure you'll be um, familiar with Miles Apart and The Baby Loss Guide. So there's mm-hmm of different um resources for parents as well Um, yeah and so the listeners can make a donation we want every book that is donated if it's in honor of another baby or a life that's been lost um we'll include a little card to say it's in honor of their baby and what year that baby passed away Um, and then they'll be passed to those families at the Canberra hospital yeah phenomenal and i will pop a link in our show notes about um how people can contribute to that and Yeah. Yeah, I just think it's such a beautiful thing and such a beautiful legacy that your whole family can take forward. And just another little way that Frankie is leaving her mark on the world. And you parent her so beautifully. I've taken a lot of inspiration and strength from the way that you guys have parented as bereaved carers and bereaved parents and having the opportunity to chat to your other children before (laughs) little link 
just looks like he's a firecracker. Like when you said before, <laughs> he was posterior and it took an hour and 40 minutes to access oh, yes. like, It's pretty <laughs> reflective of all of the things that it appears his personality is like right now. So it's incredible yeah. the way they can communicate with us the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Thank you so much for sharing your story so candidly. Um, have you got a final message for the Australian blood donors who have contributed to you guys being able to be a family um, or anyone who's considering donating in the future? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have two beautiful, healthy, smart firecracker sons and I have a beautiful daughter in spirit who's guiding us throughout life. And I, I get emotional when I talk about this, Kate, because our boys would not have survived without donor blood, like without intrauterine transfusions, they would not be here. And without IVIG, I would not have Lincoln either. And I cannot imagine the trauma for our elder daughter um, if we had lost our boys um, or if we were walking that path through life knowing that we hadn't given Frankie um, the best opportunity to survive the events of those few days. Mm. And I just know that having experienced with Lincoln his IUTs and having that few moments where there was in question whether or not we would get blood, I just urge everyone to give blood if you can um, because as many of your podcast guests have said, you never know if you'll be the, the person that needs it and it's oh, free. Yeah. And, you know, one in three of us will. And I ask people to reflect on who's their one in three. And if you yeah. think, you know, sit in the car with your kids, have a look around um you know at least one of you probably two of you your car probably yeah. everybody nearly has been <laughs> at some stage yeah. but if you think that their life is worth saving then don't be one of you know one of the 29 in 30 people that don't ever make a blood donation be yeah. one of the one in 30 that do yeah thank absolutely. you for being such a beautiful part of the milkshakes for Mali community and for sharing your story today um I can't wait to see what those beautiful children go on to do with the world Thanks so much for having me, Kate. I am keeping this conclusion super short today because everything else I could possibly say just feels so inadequate. Um, I never take for granted the incredible honour that it is to have my guests trust me with these stories and this one was extra special. So I just want to extend a massive thank you um, to the whole Pastiga family for sharing their story with us on World Prematurity Day. Um, and I know that this is an episode that has been shared so candidly and with so much love and will give such a greater understanding to all of our podcast listeners about the incredible impact that Australian blood donors have on families every single day. And I really encourage you after listening to this today to book a blood donation. This episode was written, hosted and produced by me, Kate Fitter. My guest was Lindsay Pastega, mother of four, bereaved parent and carer. The final words in this episode will come from Lincoln, Elder and Marley and our audio production and Welcome to Country are from my extraordinary husband, Jeff Fisher. Um, I just want to say thank you to blood donors for, say, for donating blood to um, my family because without that blood, my two brothers might not have made it. Um, they might have died um, and I love them so much that I can't imagine a life without them. So I just 
So a big thanks to all those blood donors who helped my family grow. Um, thanks for donating blood um, for my little brother. Um, and I um, got donated some blood when um, I was a baby, but that was so many years ago. Um, I'm a new one now. So. Thank you for my plasma.